We're going to be taking a detour from the book of Ruth today. Jake did not want to give anyone else part of it to preach. He's very possessive about Ruth. No, he's, he's welcome to have it. We're going to be reading the first several verses of Second Peter, which is one of those books you may not have ever heard a sermon on. I'm trying to remember if I did. Um, it's just, it's a little more obscure, but it's great. It's a great book. So let's read from Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, I forget what I asked Seth to put on the screen, but I'm going to stop at verse 4. I thought I was going to go further than I am. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have the chance to gather to hear your word today. Um, Pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. Give, give my words truth. Give them weight because they come from your word. And apply them to the hearts of everyone here, I pray. Um, we, we pray for those who aren't with us today, for John and Danny who are still out on the trail, that you would be with them and keep them safe. We pray for the world today, which is in turmoil and war, Ukraine and Russia. We ask that just like we sang, you would give your peace through the gospel and that you would bring peace to those countries and that you would help us to trust you for the future, whatever that brings to America. Um, Please guard our hearts with your peace and be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So who is Peter? Peter Peter is the zealous disciple Peter is, Peter is the one who gets really excited about Jesus, really excited about doing other things, and then he fails. Um, he made really big mistakes. He sinned in big ways. He was forgiven a lot. He's the disciple who said, Oh, Jesus, is that you there on the water? Well, say the word and I will, I'll come. Come on. Okay, I'm coming. No! <laughs> you know, the waves... It's too much. I can't do it. So Peter starts to sink, and Jesus pulls him up, and Peter gets a rebuke. Oh, you of little faith. So Peter knew what it was like to just get charged up for Jesus, to take the risks. And we admire him for that. I hope you admire him for that. He loved Jesus. And I hope you admire, I hope you admire the, way that, the ways that he failed and was forgiven. We need faith like that. Remember, remember when he told, he told Jesus, Jesus asked his, his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter told Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And then Jesus said what? Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that means son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whoa, 
That's a massive amount of responsibility and authority to give to someone like Peter and the rest of the disciples. And then soon after, Peter tries to rebuke Jesus and tell him, no, stop for going to the cross. No, you're not going to the cross. It's not going to happen to you. No, no. And then, what comes out of Jesus' mouth? Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Just takes him down. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Peter, you're the best. Peter, you're like Satan right now. <laughs> oh, man. And the most famous sin that Peter sinned against Jesus. I didn't say it yet. What is that? Most famous. Someone can shout it out. We're a church where people talk sometimes who aren't the preacher. Yeah, that's right. Denied him three times. After telling Jesus, absolutely, I won't. I'm Peter. Yo, (laughs) everyone else might deny you, but me? Come on. Mm, I'm not going to do it. Oh, he does it. He does it. So, and then he's restored. He's restored. So now, here's this letter. Second Peter is a letter from an older Peter, a solid Peter, a Peter who did become the rock upon which Jesus built his church. He's a Peter who had been persistent, faithful, not denied Jesus when it was hard, been willing to suffer, not run away from the cross of Jesus. Peter isn't just older, he's old. He tells us in the letter that Jesus has told him he'll die soon. So he's writing for one last one last time, to encourage these folks who appear to be the same people who received First Peter, encourage them to be firm and steady as followers of Jesus Christ. So when someone like Peter tells you to be firm and steady, and they tell you, here's how you can grow. Here's how you can be firm to the end. Does that give you any relief? All of Peter's failures, his big sins and failures are on record. You can see them all. They're just out there for you. If someone who failed like that can become mature, there's hope for you and me. There's hope for you and me. This is an intense book about how to live as a Christian. It packs a lot into a little. Um, Chapter 1, where we are, is like a crash course in how to think and act as a Christian. Chapter 2 is about false teachers who pretend to be following Jesus and how not to let them get their hooks in you. Chapter 3 is about the day of the Lord and the return, the coming of Jesus Christ. Maybe someday we'll return. Don't know. But right now we're in the crash course. I can't see. Seth, that's no good. Hi, Seth. Um, So the first way that Peter takes aim at us and our complacency and our tendency to kind of give up is the way he identifies himself. So he says, what does he say? He says, I'm I'm Peter a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, So often in the Bible, Paul or Peter, they identify themselves as servants or in this translation, which, by the way, sorry if you're used to the ESV. Today I use the NESV because I like the flow of it more. So if you're trying to follow along, the phrasing may throw you off. Um, This says bondservant. Your translation may may say servant. The actual word is just slave. No need to dress it up. It just means someone who is owned by Jesus. Someone who is totally given to the service of Jesus. Jesus has a hold of him. Everyone's a servant of someone. Everyone's a slave of someone or something. And what we know from the Bible is that you're either a slave of sin and the devil, 
or you're a slave of Jesus. You pick. And if Jesus owns you, if you're his slave, you are what? Someone give me the word. If you're a slave of Jesus, you are? It's true. You're free. You're free. That's what you are. Um, That's how the Bible talks. If you're a slave of Jesus, that means you're a son of the living God. This means you have privileges, you have rights, you have freedom. The next title that Peter gives himself is apostle. Apostle is what? One who's sent by God. One who's sent out with a special authority to be God's ambassador, to lay the foundation of the church. That's what the apostles did. So there's a special group of guys. So first, he says, I'm the slave of Christ. Second, the apostle. He's putting an emphasis on something. And who are these unnamed Christians he's writing to? We don't even have the name of the church. We don't know. We don't know what churches they're part of. Maybe in Asia Minor. Um, who are they compared to like an apostle? Peter's writing to you. Peter, Peter is someone who walked with Jesus Christ. I mean, he's sure he failed a lot, but when he failed and got rebuked, it was actually Jesus talking to him right there. Jesus that he ate meals with. Jesus who gave him hugs. Because there is physical affection between Jesus and the disciples in the Bible. Jesus, who we saw crucified, resurrected, ascending into heaven. And who are you? Who are you? Come on. Peter's an apostle. Think of the kind of faith he has, the kind of man he is now, and think of yourself, right? But Peter tells us he's writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, ours, us being the apostles. So you wish you could have seen Jesus with your eyes, maybe. I've often wished I could have been back there and seen Jesus with my own eyes instead of just with my faith. Jesus says, blessed are those who haven't seen yet believed. But, and I know he says that, but even so, haven't you ever just wished, well, if I could have just seen Jesus or walked around with him, my life now would be different, and my motivation would be different, right? It would be. You're wrong. You're actually wrong. Um, It doesn't matter if you haven't seen Jesus with your eyes. Here's what matters. What matters is that God gave you faith. That that, That word obtained, those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, it's not talking about like You pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. You did all you could to know Jesus, to learn the gospel. Now you have faith. You worked really hard at it. No, it means something given to you. Obtained by, the word is like casting lots, like rolling rolling the dice. But in this case, it's complicated. But it means God, actually, has given you something. God has allotted you something as a gift. You've obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. You have the privilege of belonging to God, knowing Jesus. You have the precious and magnificent promises that we're going to be talking about later. You have faith in the righteousness of Jesus. That's a gift you shouldn't take for granted. It's a gift from God. And it makes you the equal of the apostles. Okay? It makes you the equal of the men, the women, who saw Jesus face to face. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't make you the equal of Peter in authority. You're not an apostle, neither am I. It doesn't make you his equal in godliness, maturity. We're all at different places. 
And for various reasons, Peter and the other apostles and disciples, they had a special outpouring of God's Spirit. They had a special level of maturity that we should try to attain to. And you're not as wise as they were. (laughs) Neither am I. But the central thing is the privilege of belonging to God and knowing Jesus, and you aren't any different. In that sense, there's a level playing field between this man who walked with Jesus 2,000 years ago and saw his glory with his own eyes and you. And you have the same responsibility to grow. So how are we supposed to grow? How are we supposed to live up to the gift we have of faith? That's verses 2 through 4. All right. I'm going to read this again through verse 3, I think. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And he goes on. There's some long, complicated sentences here with a lot of phrases. You got by this and by that and by these and in him. And, and you know, it's a lot of actually things to keep track of. And the more that you look at it, the more that you look at it, the more you're like, what's, <laughs> what is the relationship of the by this to the by these and the in him? You know what I mean. Uh, okay, so... The basic idea here is everything centers around your knowledge of Jesus. Knowing Jesus. Everything comes down to that. Your whole life as a Christian and your ability to grow and to become firm and solid, like Peter. It's the knowledge of Jesus. It's what you start with as a Christian. You come to know Jesus. It's what you end with as a Christian. You know Jesus. So let's start with verse 2, which is pretty easy, right? Um, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So it's a blessing. And then the next phrase, starting verse 3, is seeing that his divine... So seeing that, what's that? It's a phrase that's connecting the blessing to Peter's reason for putting that blessing the way that he did. It's his, it's his reason, his rationale for saying that grace and peace should come to you, how? Through the knowledge, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So Peter's logic is basically this. The reason I want grace and peace to come to you through knowing Jesus, and the reason I'm putting it that way, is that that's how you already got all the awesome things from God that you need for life and godliness. God already gave you all the things that you need through the knowledge of him, the knowledge of his son. So naturally, if you're going to get more grace and peace, It's going to come the same way. Does that make sense? Um, Verse 2 again. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. You want grace, which is a word that sums up all the good and kind gifts God gives to help us. Okay, And you want peace. Everyone wants peace, right? Well, this is how you're going to get them. Knowing Jesus, I'm just going to keep repeating it until you're sick of it. But don't worry, you won't get sick of it. It's great. Knowing Jesus... Is, is the key to our Christian lives. And what, is that, what does that mean? I say that people talk about knowing Jesus in all kinds of ways. What are, we, what are we actually talking about? So knowledge of Jesus is personal knowledge. It's relational knowledge. It's not just an intuition or a feeling you get, like the way people talk. Well, I just had this sense that God was telling me to move to this state or to... Or to to marry this person. I just had this sense, or this sense that, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, sometimes 
I get on the internet, I look at things I shouldn't, but I just had this sense that it's okay, like God, it's God and I, we're okay, and no, 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 we're not just talking about an intuition, an emotional connection that you think you have that has no objective facts to it, right? It's not a relationship in that sense that you get to define who God is to you based on the way that you feel about him, who Jesus is to you based on the way that you feel about him. People talk this way, and in one sense, it's just a natural temptation for all of us. But the facts about who God is in Scripture are part of our relationship with Jesus. So, okay, real personal knowledge is more than facts, right? If I know someone. It's not less than facts. Okay, I know Bart Conrad. I know all his deep, dark secrets. That's not true. But I do know Bart. And I know facts about him. I know his hair color. I know about his family. I know that he plays guitar and bass on Sunday mornings. I know what his house looks like. You know, I know what color shirt he's wearing. Okay. Well, that's, that's not all that I know because we have a relationship. I know that Bart is generous with his time. I know that he is humble. And not to puff you up, Bart, but I know that when Bart has a different idea of what he would like to do musically than me, he doesn't just demand he doesn't, just, he doesn't just demand it. We'll talk, we talk it through. It's sweet. So I know things about Bart's character. Bart knows things about my character. I dare say that Bart and I know things, both good and bad, about one another through working together. Some of each other's weaknesses as well as strengths. This is part of knowing someone, right? Okay. In a relationship with Jesus, you know facts about Jesus. And you know Jesus, a real person, Jesus Christ. You know God. And Peter defines the terms of knowing Jesus more in verse 3. I'm going to skip down a little. He says that his divine power, so the power of God or Jesus, depending on who the his goes to, comes to the same thing, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, everything that you need. How? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Through the knowledge of Jesus. Jesus is the one, right, whose glory Peter saw. Whose glory all the disciples and apostles saw, and they wanted to make it known. And uh, we'll come back to God's divine power, the rest of that verse, but let's just focus on this for a minute. It's one thing for me to say, I know Don, I know Seth. I know lots of people in this room. I know Amanda. I know, it's one thing for me to say, I know Bart. We have relationships. It's another thing for me to say, I know Jesus. It's a different kind of thing for me to say, I have a relationship with Jesus. Why? Well, Jesus is God. Knowing him is not the same thing as knowing one of you. It's not the same thing as you knowing me. It's different because he's above us. He's our God and King. He's... He's done awesome things for us that no one else could do. He lived a righteous life. He died on the cross. He rose for our salvation. And to know him is to see his glory and excellence, his majesty, right? That's his glory, his beauty, his splendor, his majesty, his excellence, all that he's done, the beauty of his life, what his life means for you and me. The change it has. It is to be changed. To know Jesus is to be changed. You could know me and not be changed. 
hopefully, I mean, in any good friendship, right, you want the other person, you want your friend to help you, to improve you. A bad friend doesn't help you. A bad friend drags you down, maybe into sin. Or if it's a really superficial friendship, it doesn't do anything. But a good friend is always going to help you, and you're going to try to help them. It's a good friendship, right? Well, knowing Jesus really changes us. There's no friend like him. There's no person like him. And knowing him makes us new. It, it makes us fear God. It makes us think thoughts of God that we didn't think before. To know Jesus the way that Peter knows Jesus, what we're talking about here is to trust Jesus. It's to have your heart changed by him. It's to love him. And if you're, if you're a Christian, and, 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 the, and the phrasing here, the knowledge of him who called us, called us by his own glory and excellence. So I want to apply that to you. If you know Jesus, the reason that you do is this. He personally called you. He called you. Through what? Through his glory and excellence. Through manifesting to you who he is and what he has done. As it's found in the scriptures. He made himself known to you in a personal way. And when you hear the gospel message, you don't just hear an interesting set of religious ideas. You hear the voice of your master calling you. You hear him talking to you. When you read the Bible, it's not just spiritual talk, spiritual talk. There's lots and lots of spiritual talk. The Bible can be, to us, just so much spiritual talk sometimes. But if you're a Christian, what you're hearing in the Bible is not that. It is the voice of God. It is a personal thing. When you read something hard, where you hear something difficult in a sermon that applies to you, you take it personally. You take it personally because you know it's God putting some pressure on you to change, to grow. That's because you have a relationship with God. It's personal. It's not just facts. And Jesus has called you and given himself to you. So you trust him and you believe in him. And you can always know more about him. You and I can always know more about each other. Well, Jesus is the infinite God. His majesty is not limited. There's always more to know and love about Jesus and who he is. And we should make that our goal. And there are always people who claim, like I was saying, that Oh, I know Jesus. You know, whatever. Yeah, I know Jesus. I know God. We're okay. And you don't see anything in their lives to indicate that there's a real powerful relationship between them and the Lord. And that's not how it should be with you and me. Our lives are supposed to show the indication that we know the living God, the incarnate Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. And your whole life is supposed to be affected and changed by knowing God. That's the argument of this passage. So, let's go back to the beginning of verse 3. His divine power, God's divine power, Jesus' divine power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So, Peter is saying that when Jesus gave you knowledge of himself, that was an act of God's power. God's power gave you everything you needed for your life. And the act of power came through knowing Jesus. 
So one thing you should think about is that God's power is behind your Christian faith. What you know about Jesus, you didn't just figure out on your own. Remember what I quoted earlier about Peter? When Jesus says to his disciples, well, who do you say that I am? And Jesus says, you're the son of God. And Peter says, uh, Jesus says what? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Is that how you think of your faith? Something that God gave to you personally. Okay, last verse, verse 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Let's just look at that phrase for a minute. What's the, what's the by these? A lot of prepositions here. The by these, by his own glory and excellence. It's referring to what just came before at the end of the previous verse. By his, own, by his glory and excellence. So here's what Peter is saying in an interesting way. It's kind of like a riddle. Just because it's, it takes a minute. <laughs> to think about what he means. He means that Jesus, through who he is, his glory, what he did, his excellence, has secured the promises for you so that you could have them. And he's done what was necessary for you to have the awesome promises of God. Um, These promises that have been granted to us are a big part of what he was already talking about when he said that God's divine power granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Because everything you have as a Christian and everything that's coming to you is summed up in God's promises, right? What are are some promises? Someone named for me a promise, something that's promised to you in the gospel. Yeah, Ian. Say again. Never feel, never flood the earth again. Okay. Oh, that's a promise. Yeah. What else? What else? What about, what about Jesus? What does Jesus promise to sinners who come? Done. Something to share with a group. Eternal life. All right. That's a big one. Eternal life. What about our sins? What's the promise? You, you bring your sins to me, and I promise what? Forgive them. Forg- These are all promises. How about God's covenant promises? The promises that he made to Abraham and the people of God. Um, those have all come true in Christ for us. God promises to be God to you and your children after you. That's how Peter talks about God's promises at Pentecost, when he's preaching the gospel after Jesus has ascended into heaven. God promises glory, victory, eternal life to you and me. And in one sense, there are some of these promises that are fulfilled right now. And in one sense, though, well, a lot of them we're waiting on. They're not now. They're off in the future. We're looking ahead. We want them, We've grabbed onto them. They're coming. And we have them like we have any pledge, right? Any promise. I'll take you out to ice cream later. That's what your dad says to you. And you're like, yes. You're just waiting for later to come. A lot of the promises are like that. Later. I'll be back. I'll come back to earth. Everything will be perfect and set right. So what do the promises have to do with our life now? Well, anticipation is a big one. Peter tells us in the rest of verse 4 that what promises do for us, what they're meant to do for us, the the purpose of us having the promises is so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped 
the corruption that is in the world by lust. So holding on to the promises lets you fight your sins and win. So that's what Peter means when he says, escaping the corruption that is in the world by lust. Lust is a big word. Lust doesn't just mean like sexual lust. It means all kinds of evil desires that people have, that they're enslaved to. Think about greed. Think about people living their whole lives for money and the comfort and control and security that it brings. Sure, think about sexual lust. Think about the people who are destroyed day after day. Sometimes that makes the news. Sometimes it doesn't. And these people might be not just Hollywood big shots, but Christian pastors. Their sexual sin comes out. It's part of the way that the world does things. We see advertisements all the time. We see movies all the time that are full of things that incite us. The lust to be greedy, to be violent, to be proud. The world is full of this stuff. It's like a giant, it's like a black, star, a black hole or something. It's like the gravitational pull of these things. The lust that's in the world and the corruption that's in the world because of that is always trying to pull you in. And you can feel that if you're fighting your sin. <laughs> if you're fighting your sin, you can feel that. How does anyone escape a gravitational pull like that? <laughs> it's massive. It's all around us. People are dropping like flies. They do live their lives for the lusts of the world. Greed, pride, hate, sex, whatever. Well, through the promises of God. Because promises and their fulfillment are what motivate us to actually change what we're doing with our lives. Promises are a way that God's power works through us to help us. To want something different. I mean, in one sense, the Bible is almost nothing except promises and warnings. Promises and warnings. Promise, warning, over and over. How many times does Jesus promise something to you? How many times does he warn you? All the time. It never stops. When you hope for something, when you want something, when you want the kingdom of heaven, when God has put that desire in your heart, you change how you live. You change how you use your time. You change how you spend your money. You change the websites that you click on. Very practical, everyday things change. Change the way that you talk to your wife. You realize you need to make an effort to be kind to her. You change the way that you talk to your husband. You change all kinds of things. Because you have a, you have a hope of an eternal kingdom that's coming. And you want to be part of it. If your hope is to be with Jesus forever, you're motivated to become like him. You want to be like him. And on the, on the warning side of it, on the flip side of it, you know that if you were to persist in your sins and refuse grace and repentance, God would destroy you. And that's the warning side of it. The other side of the promise coin. And that's a motivator too. If you feel discouraged by the weight of the Christian life, and by God's warnings. And sometimes I felt discouraged by God's warnings, right? The other side of the promise coin can be a hard thing to look at. Okay, I have a promise for you. <laughs> I have a promise for you to think about. Jesus says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That is a promise. And if you don't have wisdom to know how to honor God in some situation in your life, or how to wisdom to raise your kids, 
wisdom to love other people in this church. Wisdom of any kind. Okay, I have a promise for you. God promises to give wisdom to those who ask him in faith. Every time. A thousand times a day. That promise, it's good. It's solid. There's a lot of promises like that. Jesus promises to come back and save those who are his own. Make the world new. Change our bodies to be like his glorious body. Not like these decaying bodies we have now. In the promises, we have what we need for life and for godliness. We have the things that we need. If you look back on your Christian life and think about when you were very young, and some of you are very young Christians, but I can remember when I was as young as you, and I had a faith in Jesus, and it was not very impressive, but I know that I had what I needed because I had the promises. As a young, as a baby Christian, you know, a little brat (laughs) who kind of wanted to obey God and kind of really didn't and was just doing his best to not completely turn his back on God (laughs) at times. I had what I needed. It's my fault for not making better use of it, even as a kid. But I did have what I needed. I didn't understand a lot of things. Some of you don't understand a lot of things yet about the Bible. You have a lot to learn. It's okay. You have what you need. You have what you need. You have God's promises. You know Jesus Christ. He's called you by his glory and excellence. You have what you need to live and grow up in a scary world. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. All right, last thing. Through the promises, you and I become partakers of the divine nature. It's kind of a weird thing to say. It's not the way scripture talks often. What does that mean? Is it, you remember when Moses had spent 40 days on Mount Sinai? And what happened to him? When he came down the mountain, the Israelites were freaked out because his skin glowed. His skin glowed. They didn't like it. It wasn't cool. (laughs) It reminded them that there's a terrifying God on a mountain, a mountain covered with smoke and flashes of fire and lightning, a mountain we're not even allowed to touch or we'll be killed. There's a terrifying God and now you're glowing and you've been in touch with that terrifying God and Moses, this is weird, (laughs) like, please stop scaring us. So Moses put a veil over his face so that he wouldn't scare them so bad. True story. It's in the Bible. And and so is it like that? Is it like we're going to become partakers of the divine nature, like kind of the glow of who God is is going to rub off on us and we're going to start glowing? Well, kind of. (laughs) Kind of. (laughs) We obey Jesus. We know Jesus. And what happens is that we start to display his glory and excellence. We start to glow, right, if you have eyes to see. Acts of love and kindness do make you stand out. A willingness to say things that are true, that are unpopular and politically unsafe, will make you stand out. You will look strange. You will look odd. People will be uncomfortable around you if you're godly. Not because you're being a jerk. Not because you're trying to start fights with your co-workers about religious debates. It's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is You love people, you say the truth, you take risks. Remember Peter, the risk taker. You take risks. You glow, you you glow, you show you show God's glory, you show his excellence. You change. People get a picture of God's love and truth when they look at you. That's a beautiful thing. 
So we're not talking about like a Buddhist sense of, oh, you become God, like you get kind of absorbed into God. Ooh, that's not a Christian idea. Your personality doesn't get erased. You don't get cool superpowers like being able to walk on water. That's not, that's not what it means to become a partaker of the divine nature. It means that you become more like Jesus in your character. And that's, people's characters are hard to change. That's a powerful thing and a wonderful thing. One day we'll be fully transformed into the, into the likeness of Christ. No greed, no pride, no lust, no hate, no anxiety will be in our hearts on that day. It will be gone. We will have become fully partakers of the divine nature. It's easy to neglect the future, right? It's easy not to think about what's ahead. The promises of God, things, promises that are ours now, and promises that are in the future. It can be easier, I want to say, to, to remember to think about what Jesus has done for us, which is obviously really important. It's obviously a big part of what Peter is talking about. How can you hope for the future with Jesus if you don't love what he's done for you and know about that? But the Bible is always showing us, here's what he's done for you. And on that basis, here's what you're called to. Look at what's ahead because of what he did. And you have to look ahead and grab onto God's promises. So what Peter does next in the rest of this passage is he goes on, he gives this really cool, practical, helpful list of qualities that build on each other, kind of like you're climbing a ladder. I love it. Uh, Maybe someday we'll come back to it. But what do you do with this so far? I, well, I hope you've already gotten a sense. You need to know Jesus. Um, check yourself. Where on your list of priorities in your life does knowing Jesus fit? Do you read your Bible? Do you pray? Is that important to you? Is it an afterthought? The last thing you do after Netflix, if you are still awake? Where is it in your life? Knowing Jesus should be a priority for us. Knowing Jesus is how we grow. It's where we get our joy and our motivation. It's how we like live through the darkness of our times. You know, a cursory glance at the news indicates times are getting worse. God knows what will happen. But you and I need strength and help for that. So read your Bible. Read it regularly. Daily is a good goal. Something every day. It's a good goal. It's an attainable goal. Pray. Set aside some time to pray. Not just the afterthought, not just meals. Set, set aside a little time to pray. And I'm serious, like, make it a little goal. Five minutes of private prayer. You know how hard it is some, some days for me to do five minutes of private prayer. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's not that hard. And we need it. We need to know God. We need to know Jesus. We need to make that a priority in our lives. You need to feed your soul. God wants to feed your soul. Um, We have the promise of the kingdom of heaven, and we need to live for that and know what honor we can do to Jesus, what honor we can do for our master, our savior, our Lord, our friend. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us the knowledge of Jesus through his glory and his excellence so that we would have everything that we need for life and godliness, everything we need to live and to be happy, to be joyful. Thank you so much for all the promises that are in him. Thank you for the promises that are ours right now by faith. Please help us to hold on to them 
and be a people whose lives are defined by those promises that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen.